maybe habitually late to everything, so maybe you can't relate to this, but there's been a few times in my life, there might be times in your life, so I'm not talking about that, but like where you actually planned to be somewhere at a certain time and you missed it, maybe you put it in your calendar wrong, whatever. One time for me, like I'm one of those people, again, I can't even be late, even if I'm just hanging out with a bunch of friends and we're like, hey, we'll get together at seven, doesn't really matter when you get there, like I'm there at 6.58, I'm always there on time, but one time it was my senior year of college, it was the last you know, the exams of the of the end of senior year. And I took a music history class because I found out that I only needed to take it uh, two music history classes my senior year and I could get a music mi a minor because I started as a music major and I switched. I was like, hey, let's do that. Ended up being really hard. And I'm like, why did I do it? I don't know. Who cares that I have a music minor? It was worthless. But anyway, so I did it. And uh, it was the exam. It was the end of the year. And so I needed the class, obviously, to graduate because you need the credit hours, that sort of thing. And I thought the exam was at 11 a.m. And it's the, you know, the end of the year. And I, it was about 9.30 in the morning. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I told Christina, I said, I, I, I think I missed my exam. Like, I don't know why. It just hit me. So I go online, I check, and it was actually at 8. And I was like, but wh why did I do this? Like, I didn't even need to take this class, and now I'm not going to. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, dang, I missed my exam. And Christina's like freaking out for me. Like, why aren't you freaking out? I'm like, I don't know. What am I, supposed to? I can't do anything about it. I just missed it. And so, um, and so I called the, my teacher, who obviously didn't answer because she was in the class. I go to the school, whatever. And she was very gracious, and she let me retake it the next day. So, guys, I'm okay. I graduate on time, all that sort of thing. But it was a time in my life where I was like, mm, I got it wrong. That's not good. And that's why, here's why this is significant, because I think this is how sometimes we view how God works in our life, right? We think God gets it wrong. And so what we're doing this morning is we're continuing our series, Uninvited King. We're talking about this King Jesus who came, although he was uninvited to make a way for us to receive grace and salvation. Uh, week one in December, we talked about God's plan, that he planned in extreme detail the coming of this King. Last week, we talked about God's motive, that God does not need you or me at all. He only came because he loves us. And today we're talking about God's timing. We're going to look at the Christmas story and how it shows us that we can trust God. God and his timing. So here's what I want us to know as we begin. And that's this, that God's timing is always right. So God's timing is always right. And we see evidence of this because he sends the Messiah at the right time. Even in Israel's history, it had been 400 years, there had been no prophets or anything, and they don't know what's going on. And yet God in his providence decided, no, this is the right time. And if we can trust God to send the Messiah at the right time, that means we can trust God in our lives, even when things are not going and God's not answering our prayers in the time that we would like it. So let me give you an example about how Paul talks about how God came at the right time in Galatians chapter four. It'll be on the screen. Um, you can turn there as well if you want. Some background of what's going on here is he's talking about, he's writing this letter to the church in Galatians. Galatia, which is a church compromise of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. So Christians who had been Jews, familiar with the law, Jewish traditions, all that sort of thing, and those who knew nothing about Judaism or Jewish law or anything like that until they became a Christian, now learning about Jesus. So it's this mixed group. And Paul is writing to them, talking about how the Old Testament law was a good thing, but it was the point of it was to point you towards our need for the Messiah. So you could we could not uphold the law perfectly. And so it shows us, even though it was good, it had a it had it had a, a reason for a time being, but Jesus was going to come to fulfill the law on our behalf. And then he says, because this Christ has come, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, who you are, where you work, anything like that, we all can come to Jesus and receive grace and forgiveness. And so here's what he says, verse one in chapter four. He says, now that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So what he's talking about, again, the coming Messiah, that even in that time you had servants, you had slaves, uh, a child, even though he was going to inherit the, the, the wealth and, the, and you know, the, 
whatever his family had. As a child, he's no different than a servant because he doesn't have the authority to do anything with it. It's not technically his yet. It's kind of like even today, if you have life insurance for your kids and you pass away, they can't access that money until they're a certain age. And so he's saying, even if you are an heir, if something's coming towards you as a child, you still don't get to you know play that out or see that out yet. So he says this in verse two, instead, he, that is the heir, is under the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. So here's what, he's, he, here's what he means by that, this idea of being enslaved under the elements of the world. He's, again, he's talking to Jews and non-Jews. So the Jews, here's how they were enslaved to the elements of the world. Although the law was good, by the time of Jesus, they had added so many extra laws to the, even the Old Testament laws that it had become extremely legal, legalistic. In fact, most Jews probably at the time of Jesus would not refer to Jesus or to God as a merciful or forgiving or loving God. Although if you read the Old Testament, you see time and time again how that is actually him. But because they had become so legalistic and following all these things because they think that's what makes God love us, then they are now enslaved to their legalism. And on the other side, you had the people who were pagans in the sense of that they did not believe in Jesus until they became Christians. They were also enslaved to the things of this world. And this is how it connects with us. You so often in today's world, people look at those who are Christians who believe in Jesus as enslaved in the sense of like, oh, you know, you, you can't do whatever you want. You have to follow God. You have to obey him. And we, they kind of view it as like a holding you back. You don't really get to experience life. In fact, we know the opposite is actually true, that in Jesus, you actually have the freedom to experience life. Let me give you an example of how this works. This Just this week, I was on Twitter and I, and I found this, someone tweeted this article of Jack Dorsey, who is the CEO of Twitter, which is a social media network, if you don't know what Twitter is. And it said that he had just uh, completed this new meditation craze fasting where he didn't have sex, do any drugs, or speak for 10 days. And everyone was freaking out in the comments, like how amazing it was. And I was like, you know, speak for 10 days. That's kind of interesting. But but what they were freaking out about was not that. They were like, he didn't have drug, do drugs. He didn't have sex. He didn't drink alcohol for 10 days. How did he do that, right? And the reason I saw this tweet is because someone says, man, I do this every day. I didn't know I was a superhero, right? And what's the point? Is these people who would often think that those who follow Jesus are enslaved are enslaved to things. They can't even go 10 days without doing drugs. And if that is not enslavement, I don't know what is. And what he is saying here is that you and I were enslaved either to legalism or to things of this world, but Christ has come to do what? Verse four. But when the time came to completion at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then a God has made you an heir. What is he saying that? Because Jesus has now come, you actually can partake in God's inheritance, past, present, and future, no matter who you are, no matter how much you have screwed up or messed up. Jesus came to make it possible for us to be children of God so that whatever Jesus gets, we get when we enter into God's kingdom where there's no more pain, suffering, death, lying, cheating, any of these things. It's not because of what you have done, because what Christ has done. And this heir has now come so that we should no longer, we no longer have to live under enslavement. So here's what this means. Not only is God's timing right, but God's timing is also always good. And here's the thing about God's timing, how we often talk about it. We often talk about God's timing as being perfect. And that is true. It is perfect. But it's also good in the sense that even if he's not answering your prayers on your timeline, even if you have no idea why he's doing things or allowing things to prolong the way that they are, what we see in the coming of Jesus is that not only it's right, 
but it's actually good that he may be doing things and using things in your life or in those around you that you cannot see that would not happen if he did things on your timeline. And so here's what this means. If God's timing is right and God's timing is good and we see that in when he sent Jesus, then this is what this means for us, that God's timing can also be trusted. Which means we, which means we actually have to trust and have faith even when he's not doing things in the manner or in the timeline in which we would want. So let me give you an example of a time in my life, and not just my life, New City Church's life, where God did not do things in the time that I wanted him to do them. But because of that, good, much more good came of it than would have come if, I, if things had gone into my timeline. So here's an example how if God's timing is right and good, it can be trusted, even if it doesn't seem like it in the midst of it. If you've been here for a while, you may be, be somewhat familiar with this story. Um, but we were originally supposed to launch New City Church in January of 2017. The problem was we could not find a space to meet in, which I didn't think was going to be very hard, but it ended up being quite difficult. So we were looking at community centers and schools and all these things. And for all these random reasons, we kept getting no's for the randomest reasons. I didn't make any sense. Christine and I had actually moved into these townhomes that are actually right across the street. Um, we live right across the street from where we now meet. We even moved to the, this area of town because we wanted to launch a church here, get to know it, that sort of thing. And nothing was working. I didn't understand. I was like, God, I feel like this is a good place to be for a bunch of different reasons. Why aren't you answering this prayer? It doesn't make any sense. And so it was the uh, week of Thanksgiving, November, fall 2016, still nothing's working out. And I realized that Shelly Lake Community Center, which is about five minutes from here, I thought I had at, contacted them, but I realized I hadn't. <clears throat> I didn't really love the space, but I was like, it might be open. So I called. I was like, hey, here's what we're doing. Is it available to, you know, to rent on Sundays? And the woman that answered the phone said yes. And as soon as she said yes, I knew a butt was coming. I knew it. She said, but we're going under uh, renovations for the next six months. And so after then you can have it. And so I hung up the phone, <clears throat> really upset. I was like, God, we're, why can't we find anything? And so my first thought was, I guess we're not going to be able to launch in this area of Raleigh that we really want to be. I don't understand, but that's okay. And then immediately right after I thought that, I remembered <clears throat> that every weekend there was a church would put their road banner sign out, just like ours is on the road. But I never like, I actually didn't actually know where they met. Like I never drove in here. I was like, what do they actually mean? So for some reason it pops into my mind. And so I was like, well, I might as well not thinking anything of it. I was like, well, I'm just sitting here. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'll just see where they meet. I don't understand. So go on their website. <clears throat> First thing it says as you pop on the website, moving January 2017. It said, I'm not getting excited about anything, but this is interesting. All right. And so then I call the pastor guy and the next day I come and look at it. It actually looks quite different than what it does now. We've got a great team of people that have transformed this place. And, uh, and so he's like, yeah, I don't think they've signed a lease yet. And so the next day on Wednesday morning, I took a couple more people <clears throat> to show it and like, yeah, I mean, we have no other choice. So let's go for it. Here's, here's the deal. So we eventually, obviously, we have this space now. A bunch of stuff had to happen. We signed the lease in January. Our lease started in March of 2017. We launched in April. Why is that significant? Because if we had not exhausted all of our other resources, we would not have done everything it took to get a lease signed in this space. Because there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of things for that had to work for us to even get here. And if we had had other options... We never would have done the work to make it possible. And if we had had other options, we would never, if God had answered my prayer of having a space sooner, we would have been in a school or somewhere, so we would have been portable, which is not as fun as not having to be portable. Why? Because you also can do more things. So like when it snows last week, what do we do? We have a Saturday night service. We would not have been able to do that. We get to do things like trivia. We have events here all throughout the week, all the time, because we have a space, which by the way, we pay the same thing that we would have paid for a school to rent just on Sunday mornings once a week. And that is what God's done. So he shows us that, again, if, if, I had, if God had answered the prayer in the way I wanted, in the timeline that I had wanted, we would not be here doing the things that God is allowing us to do. Right? So God's timing is right, 
and good and can be trusted. And if you're sitting in the middle of it right now and you're like, well, I'm so great that it worked out for, for New City, but I'm still, I don't have an answer for you if you're struggling. I don't know how it's going to play out for you, but I just want you to know that if we can trust God with the Messiah, we can trust him with the details of our life. God's timing can be trusted even in the midst of it. It does not look like things are going to go anyway the way you want them. It could be because they're going to go a lot better, or it could be because God's going to use this situation to change people's lives in ways that would not have happened if he had answered your prayers on your timeline. So coming, talking about God's timing, let's uh, open up to Luke chapter 2 and read about the time that God came. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to read Luke uh, chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and pull it out. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you, page 909 in there. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. That is our gift to you. We're going to pick up the story in <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, verse 1, talking about the time that Jesus came. And it's a, it's a Christmas tradition of mine every December to also fix the Christmas story. So you're going to find out some of our traditions are actually incorrect. So here we go. This is going to be fun. Chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinus was governing Syria. So everyone, everyone went to be registered each to his own town. So the Roman Empire decides to do the census. So everyone starts to you know, count the people that live there. Verse four, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. So Mary and, uh, Mary and Joseph go to Joseph's hometown in Bethlehem to be registered. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. That's significant. We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 7, then, uh, uh, then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. So two things to fix, uh, fix about the kind of the traditional nativity scene Christmas set that you may even have at your house. Number one, it says this in verse 7, that the time came for her to give birth, which means that Jesus, or that Mary did not give birth the night they, they arrived to Bethlehem. So oftentimes we think, oh, I'm pregnant, we got to go. And so they travel a day, they get there, there's nowhere to stay, and she gives birth that night. Actually, it would have taken a couple of days for them to get to Bethlehem, number one. Number two, she was there probably a couple of days, if not a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months before she gave birth, because while they were there, the time came. And also they would not have traveled such a far distance if she was about to give birth. So they had actually been there for a little bit. Why is that significant? Because what does it say in verse, uh, verse seven? It says, there is no guest room available for them. What does that mean? Sometimes it's translated in. I think guest room is a better translation for it. Regardless, what do we often think? There was nowhere for them to stay. So they stay in a stable and Jesus pops out and that's what happened. Actually, Here's what's happened, right? They had been there for a while. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture today, especially back then, it is extremely hospitable. There is no way in the world that Joseph's family would have kicked out their own family from coming to stay with him, even if they had a lot of family coming at once, especially because Mary was pregnant. They would not have kicked them out to go stay in some stable by themselves and give birth. That not would have happened. So what, what does it mean when it says there was no guest room available for them? Of course, there's debate about this, but it seems that the most likely thing that happened was houses back then, you know, they didn't have a bunch of rooms and all that sort of thing. Oftentimes they only had one room to sleep in, maybe two, but the rooms were not that big. So when it says there was no guest room available for them, what that means is that there was there would not have been room uh, for all the maid, the maid servants and everyone, the midwives to be there um, for the birth to take place. So they needed a space big enough. Enough that that could kind of have everyone to house everybody to do the whole birthing process, which means that they gave most likely gave birth in the common room of the house. 
Not in some barn, not in some cave, but in the house. What about the animals? Well, what, what do we know also about that time is that oftentimes they would take animals from outside to inside at night for two reasons. One, if it was cold, but two, to stop uh, thieves from stealing animals. So there also would have been animals present because it happened at night and they were inside. And because they often brought animals inside every single night, they also built mangers into the walls. So it could have been a portable manger or it could have been one that was built, but there would have been hay, manger, animals inside. So they were not rejected to sleep and give birth in a stable most likely happened in a house in someone's living room with a bunch of people around. So that has nothing to do really with the main point, but just want to let you know that your, that your nativity scene may not quite be accurate. So verse 8 continues, says this, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields, keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Another side note, sometimes, it doesn't happen that often, but I've had a few people sometimes come up to me and be like, I saw God, or Jesus appeared to me, and they talk about how awesome it was. I'm like, well, what we see throughout Scripture is that anytime God appears to someone in a vision or whatever, people are always terrified that the holiness and the righteousness of God is before them. They always think they're about to die. So if you want to trick someone, talk about how scared you were. Don't talk about how lovey and dovey it was. Like it's, often, it's scary to see God, okay? Anyway, so that's what happens. Verse 10, here's what happens next. But the angel said to them, so the angels that appeared said to the shepherds, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth, lying in a manger. Verse 13, suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and they returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, one thing really quickly, who does God uh, tell the first people to find out about the birth of the Messiah? Uh, shepherds. Why is that significant? Because shepherds back then were not looked upon as great influential people. Uh, not, there's no, I mean, no disrespect, but I'm trying to give you a, an accurate analogy. It would be like God appearing to minimum wage workers today. Uh, garbage men, fast food, nothing wrong with that at all, but our society does not view people in those professions very highly. They don't view them as influential. They often don't have a lot of money. They're not the people that you would think God would tell the most life-changing history of the world to, but yet he tells it to people that the culture had said did not matter. And if you know more about the Christmas story, about Jesus' life, who were the first people that, were, that find out that Jesus had raised from the dead? Women. Why is that significant? Because back in that time, women were considered second-class citizens. They could not even testify in court because they couldn't be trusted, right? And so what does God do? He tells the most life-shattering, altering history, the biggest announcement in the history of humankind, of all creation, that God has come and that God has risen. Who did he tell it to? Women and shepherds, who everyone said did not matter. So what you need to know about that this morning is this, that no one is too insignificant to God. So no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter where you work, no matter how much money you made, no matter how much you may have screwed up in your life, God came because he cares for you. Not just for the people who have it all together, but the people who need him the most. No one is too insignificant for God. You are not too insignificant to God. But let's continue. Verse 16, it then says this. So the shepherds, they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So what was the response of these shepherds when they see that this king, there's something different about this Messiah, this baby boy that had come. What do they do? They worship 
the king. When we talk about how God's timing is good and talk about how God, the king of the universe, came to the world, what should our response be? Should it be like, oh, that's good, I don't really care, or should we worship the king? The shepherds thought whatever was happening was so significant that it caused them to stop everything and worship the king. I'm going to give you one other example, Matthew chapter 2. Um, it'll, if you want to flip there as well, this is the other account of Jesus' birth where we also see the same type thing happen. This actually, if you want to continue the story, happens a little bit right after what we read in Luke chapter 2. But here's what it says, also the birth of Jesus, the time of this king coming. It says this, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem uh, with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where Christ would be born. What's going on here? So King Herod is kind of the governor or the king of this part of the Roman Empire that the Romans are allowing him to rule. And what we know about Herod is that he was extremely paranoid and extremely ruthless. He murdered his wife, a few of his sons, and a few of his other extended family because he didn't want anybody taking over his throne. And so he sees these magi come who are somewhat familiar with Jewish prophecy because they see the star and they're like, do you know what's going on? He's like, I don't know what's going on. And so he sends them to go figure it out. Now, this, for just for a second, let's, let's fix the Christmas story here. Two more things to fix for you. Number one, that these magi were not uh, kings. So they were wise men. They were astrologers. They were not kings. They're coming from Babylon. Some are from the east because long story short, we'll get into it this morning, but they are somewhat familiar with Jewish prophecy. So they see this star. They're like, this must be what it was talking about. So let's go. They arrived to King Herod. Um, so they weren't kings. There also likely were not three of them. The reason we always talk about three kings, and you might know the song, We Three Kings, is because they present three, ki- three gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we actually have no idea how many uh, magi there were. There was likely more than three. And on top of that, they did not travel alone. There would have been an extremely large group of people that came with the Magi, because back in those days, there were thieves, robbers everywhere. You had to travel in large groups, especially if you're traveling a large distance. So there would have been a lot of them that came. Not only that, they were not there the night that Jesus was born. It says uh, after Jesus' birth, they arrived to Bethlehem. They arrived to Judea to figure out what's going on. It would have taken them at least 40 days if they're coming from Babylon, if not longer, to get to where Jesus was, which means if we're going to fix the nativity set, Again, number one, uh, they were not there the night that Jesus was born. Um, That means the shepherds and them did not meet, which means that you can take away, where where are we at now? You can take away the stable, the wise men, the shepherds may or may not be there. And so all these things, you're like, well, at least I got baby Jesus, mother, and uh, Mary and Joseph. So at least I got them, right? Not if they're white. If your nativity scene is a bunch of white, then you don't have anything. And I'm sorry, okay? I'm not saying take it down. I'm just saying... You don't have anything actually representing what actually happened the night Jesus was born. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let's keep going. Verse 5. So there, so King Herod's like, what's going on here? The wise men say, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what the, was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That was Micah, uh, Micah chapter 5 in the Old Testament, written over 700 years before Jesus was born. That is who, what the Magi are telling King Herod, how they knew that this Messiah might be here. Then verse 7, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. 
He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him as well. Now, what we know that is actually a lie. He, he wants to find out where Jesus is so that he can go and kill him. In fact, if we keep reading past what we're going to read this morning, we actually find out that he actually has, once he figures out what's going on, the wise men don't come back and tell him, he has all baby boys that are two years old and younger killed because he wants to make sure that this baby does not make it, right? So that's what happens there. Verse, uh, verse 9, here's what it says next. After hearing the king, they, talking about the wise men, went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child uh, with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being wrapped in a dream, or and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. What do they do when they see this king, this Jesus? They worship the king. Now, to be fair to the Magi, they probably did not believe that Jesus was actually God himself or the son of they, they All that they knew is that there's something different, there's something significant about this baby boy that caused them to worship or to view him differently than they viewed everybody else. And so the question for you and for I this morning is, what are we going to do with this king that has come? Are we going to worship him because of the grace and the mercy that he offers? Or are we going to say, eh, I'm good? Now, and, and if that is our option, here's what I also want us to know, that it is true that God came from heaven into his creation that rejected him, that God who knows everything, can do everything, is perfect, righteous, holy, just, all these things, comes in the form of a human being, then there actually is no other way to respond other than worship him. Which means, again, there is no other way to respond. There is no other way we should respond other than worshiping him if, in fact, it is true that God has come to make a way for us to experience grace, forgiveness, and love. And let me give you an example of why this is the appropriate response. So we'll just talk about life in general, right? Anytime something unbelievable happens to you, you respond. Like, let me give you an example of some cool things that, that one cool thing that happened to me that I responded to. Like, so for example, as many of you know, I'm a very big Duke fan. And when I was in college, it was one of the years that Carolina was better than Duke, which is no fun. But it was, they were playing, they were playing in the Dean Dome in Chapel Hill and Duke was losing the entire game. And if you're familiar with the Austin River shot, he hits a three-pointer at the buzzer to win. It was absolutely incredible. And do you think me, as this big Duke fan who always talks about them, was like, cool, and just leave. No, I didn't do that. What do you think I did? I jumped on my friend's back, ripped my shirt off, kind of rolled my head, ran around the room, jumped on the couch. I did all these things. Why? Because something awesome, incredible happened. I didn't just sit there and be like, eh. no, it was awesome. It, it, it caused an emotive response out of me, right? Maybe when you find out you're pregnant for the first time or when you have your first child or, or maybe like, maybe you've been working really hard for this promotion and someone walks in, your boss walks into your office and is like, hey, great news. I'm going to give you this promotion. I'm going to give you this raise and you've been working for so long. What do you normally do? If you're, you know, most of us we're like, okay, good, cool. And as soon as their boss leaves, what do you do? Oh yeah, baby. And you start like dancing and you're like doing all these things. Why? Because you got good news, right? I don't know if you guys do this. Am I the only one? Like when we, when we moved back to Raleigh uh, years ago, I was trying to find a job. It wasn't working out. Long story short, get a job at Verizon, all these interviews. And they call me a couple days before Christmas and say, Mr. Dawson, we're pleased to inform you that you know you have this job. Blah, blah. I'm like, oh great. Thank you so much. Hung on the phone. Yes, yes, yes. I'm freaking out. Why? Because something awesome happened. I'll give you one more example that gets me. I don't care if you, you can take my man card. But anytime I watch the videos of troops returning home to surprise their family, do you think their family is never like, 
cool, nice to see you, Jack. It's been a while. No, they freak out and they're crying. And if there's people there, people are applauding. Why? Because something amazing happened. And if it is true that God himself, the king of the universe, came, there is no other way to respond but to worship him. And, and we said this a couple of weeks ago, we talked about God's plan, but I think it bears repeating. What makes this so much more amazing is that what we think is spontaneous, God has actually planned, or God has timed all along. It wasn't like, I'll just do, no, he, in his perfect timing, said, I am going to make this happen, which makes this story uh, so much more significant and so much more impactful. Like, I, uh, you know, for example, I'll give you an example of, of, of how this makes it even more amazing. Uh, when I was um, younger, my, my dad came on one night and took my, my mom home, my mom on a date, got a babysitter, we stayed home, they did this, whatever they do on dates. And, uh, and so we stayed up, and, and here was the thing, my mom was like, like she was like one spontaneity, whatever. My dad was an extremely planned, detailed person, like nothing ever happened unless it was on his calendar. And so he didn't tell her, he just came home and said, hey, let's go on a date. And she thought it was awesome, they had a great time. A couple of days later, um, he forgets his, uh, his, his planner, his calendar at home. This is before Google Calendar, online, all that sort of thing. So he had, you know, the thing where he planned every, his entire workday, everything was planned to the minute. And so he forgot it. And so he called my mom. He's like, hey, can you let me know like what I'm supposed to be doing today? All these things. And so he, she calls him, whatever, they hang up. And then she looks at his planner and notices the couple of days before where they went on the date, I think it was Thursday night, whatever night it was, it had blocked out, be spontaneous with Debbie. Right? She thought it was spontaneous, but he planned it all along because he ain't spontaneous, right? And when she saw that, you think she was like, oh, he planned that. Man, that didn't count. No, she was actually grew an, an appreciation like, oh, man, this was such a big deal for him. And he, and he knew that I value spontaneity, spontaneity, whatever the word is, right? That he actually planned to do this for my benefit. What we think is spontaneous, God timed all along, which means, again, we can trust him. He is good with our time. And if you can trust him, then we ought to worship him. And so here's the bottom line. Here's the main point this morning, and that's this, that God came at the right time in the right way to make a people right. God came at the right time. And yes, I will grant to you because of our limited knowledge, we don't know everything. How, how do you know 2,000 years ago that was actually right? Time? I can't, I don't know for sure. I'm not God, but God, in his, as we trust and have faith in his providence and eternal wisdom, he said this was the exact right time to come in the right way. Again, if God is perfect and just, he can't just like forget about our sins. Like he has to do something with it. So if, you, if you're banking on your good outweighing your bad, uh, don't do that because God cannot just pretend like your sins did not happen. So what does he do? Instead, he comes, he sends Jesus to live the perfect life on our behalf, not only just in actions, but in thoughts. He was never prideful, he was never selfish, he was never greedy, he was never any of these things. To take, he, he was the perfect uh, sacrifice on our behalf that anyone that would trust and believe in him would have the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God, not because we did anything, but because he did everything. So God came in the right way to make a people right, to make anyone who would trust and believe in this uninvited king who came the ability to have the grace and love and forgiveness of God and one day enter into his kingdom again, not because you're great, but because he's great. That is what God did. I'll read one more, uh, one more passage real quick, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, talking about God's coming as well. Um, and it says this, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, it says, first of all, again, this is Apostle Paul writing, I ur uh, then I urge that petitions and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life and godliness and dignity. And then he says this, this is good. And it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is why Jesus came. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper 
time. There is one mediator between God and men, and that is Jesus himself. It is not you and your good works and your spirituality. Trying to know it is Jesus himself. And the question is, what are we going to do with this Jesus who came? Again, God came at the right time in the right way to make a people right. And the question for you and for me is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to worship him or are we going to say, nah, I'm good? And my advice is not to say, nah, I'm good, because how can you say that if God himself came because he loves you? God came at the right time in the right way to make a people right. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace and for your mercy that you came to make a people right, not because we did anything to deserve it, not because we're awesome, because you're awesome and you're good and you're perfect. And my prayer this morning is that we would know and understand your goodness and your grace, that we know that you can be trusted at all times and that you're good at all times. And if we're in the midst of something right now and we're not sure how it's going to play out, how it's going to end, I pray for strength and endurance in that test. For those of us that are here this morning and may not be sure about this Jesus thing, have questions, my prayer is that they would know today unquestionably that you love them and that you came. And this is a safe place to ask questions and get to know more about you. Um, But they would know that you came because you love them. It's not up to them. It's up to you who gave your life on their behalf. And so I pray for anyone today who does not know Jesus that they would know that you are good and that you love them and they can know you this morning. And for those of us that are here that do know you, I pray that we would just be reminded that we can trust you when things are not going the way that we want. We don't understand what is going to happen in the future, that you are good. You are good all the time, even if we can't see it. And I pray that we would just be encouraged by your love, by your faithfulness, because you came. You came at the right time. So thank you for your undeserved gift. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made, that you can make us a right people, that you can bring us into a relationship with you, not because of what we have done, because of what you have done. And it all started when you came. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.